We've been talking over the last number of months, really, and we're headed somewhere. We're almost getting there. Um, about the principles of the kingdom of God. We've all grown up in families. Some of them were good, healthy families. Some of them were not quite so good and not quite so healthy. Uh, we've all gone to school. Some of us had wonderful teachers. Some of us had teachers that weren't so wonderful. We've had, but we've all grown up in situations in different settings. And each of those situations and settings, family, school, church, wherever you've gone, work operates by certain rules and principles. In some cases, they're written down. So in most places of work, it's called a handbook. They'll give you a handbook, and that's the basic rules by which the, your employers decided they want to operate your company, your business, what they require of you, what they've agreed to do. But we all know that there are also unwritten rules, that the rules that other people operate by that aren't necessarily in the handbook, the rules in our society that are not necessarily written in the law books, there are rules in church here that aren't written in your bulletin, like where you sit every Sunday. <laughs> You're assigned seats, not in the bulletin. It's just become a habit to you, and that habit becomes something so that if you're moved from there, now some of you are more entrenched than others, if, you, if you're moved from there either because you want to or because somebody's taken your assigned seat, uh, it's an adjustment we have to make. And, and, and so because somebody's, in fact, we've had people in here that almost got into fights a long time ago because somebody was sitting in their seat. Somewhere they've missed the teaching, I think. But they were upset because somebody was breaking their rule because that was their seat. The point is we all have rules we operate by, and in most cases, we're not conscious of them. We just, they're there, we've learned to go by them, we've got an idea when we're in line with them, we've got an idea when we're not in line with them. And what we've learned is that the kingdom of God has rules like that. They're principles that the kingdom of God operates on, and that We've looked in the Garden of Eden, and we'll talk a little bit more about that this morning, and discovered that in that garden, that garden operated by those rules, and while they operated by that rule, those rules in that garden, they were incredibly blessed. They didn't have to worry about what they were going to eat. They didn't, they weren't even worried about anything. In fact, they were so un, not, I don't know what the word is. They worried, they had so little to worry about, they didn't even realize they didn't have any clothes on. So obviously they didn't have to worry about what they were aware because they weren't even conscious of themselves. There was no fear. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no sickness and disease. There was no lack. Everything was blessed by God in abundance. See, we we've still don't understand how good God is. How generous God is. How, des- how strong a desire God has to bless you in every area of your life. That was his idea, not yours. You were his idea. You weren't your own idea or your parents' idea. They may have had a thought along those lines, but you are God's creation. He wanted you. He loves you. And he didn't create you to torture you or make things difficult. He created you because he wants to pour his love and his blessing out on you. But we all went astray. And what happened in that first place, that garden, is they decided instead of doing it God's way, they listened to the voice of the serpent that came in. And all his effort was to get them to become conscious of themselves and to take their eyes off of God and who He is. And the moment they became self-conscious, they stepped into a rebellion against the rules of the kingdom of God and they entered into the principles of the kingdom that this world is now governed by. 
And we've looked and seen that the principles that this world is governed by are not a different set of principles because they're authored by Satan. And Jesus said about Satan that he's a liar and the father of lies and there is no truth in him. So in order for him to have had to create his own set of rules, he would have had to have been able to create a truth. And since there's no truth in him, he's not capable of creating a truth. So all he could do and all he needed to do is to take truths that God had ordained and pervert them. It's important to understand that because the principles that you and I have learned to operate in our lives because it's what everybody around us has done from the time we came out of our mother's womb to even now. Everyone around us in our family, in our job, in our life, in our school has learned to operate by these rules without even being conscious of it. And when it's ingrained in us and when our atmosphere, if our environment is saturated by it, we're not even conscious of doing it. We just do it. It's second nature to us. But what we need to understand is it's not these principles are not that we've operated by are not based on some truth. They're based on a perversion of God's principles that are the truth. And it's important because what God wants us to do is to renew our mind so that we no longer operate by the principles that we were learned to operate and we begin to learn to operate by the principles of the kingdom of God. And the reason this is so important is because it's harder to let go of the principles of the world if we think there's truth in them. But when we recognize they're just a perversion of the true principles, then it's easier to let go of them. I mean, you've all had to do that. We've talked about some of these principles. You know, do unto others before they do it unto you. you know, that's just kind of instilled in us. And it's like if you start talking the way God talks about, you know, pray for those who despitefully use you, people think you're weird. Why? Because you're going opposite the principles that the kingdom of the world. So how do I just, how do I have confidence to do that? Because this is what I've always known. I mean, when you start making changes to go along with what God says to do, people think you're strange and weird. Some of you have already experienced that when you got saved. And you began to talk differently. I mean, you began to do this weird thing. You came to church because you wanted to. And your family looked at you and said, why would you go there? And then they asked, well, how long is the service? It must be some cult. Now, why do they think that? Because it's counter to the principles and the system of thinking that the world's been ingrained with and you're relatives were ingrained with and you were ingrained with and now you stand up and say but I want to do something different and you're not doing something different because you have to somebody's making you to but you actually want to why? because you're getting something out of it why? because you're beginning to operate in truth you run into people regularly I do, my wife does who watch the television show that we're filming right now and they love to watch. There was a point, it's not there anymore, there was a restaurant in this area, and I would go to the restaurant after the service and sit there, not every week, but go there sometimes, and the waiter one day came and says, are you on television? I said, yes, why? He says, are you on Sunday morning? I said, yes, why? He says, we watch you over the bar. <laughs> Before the patrons started coming in, there's a big widescreen TV sitting over the bar, and you were on... TV over a bar. 
the right spirit. But the que- why do people keep coming back to that? Because they're hearing truth. And there's a need inside of all of us to hear truth because we've been raised, we've been sold rules that are not based on truth. And again, I'm taking the time to go back over this because the things that God is challenging us here are to let go of things that are a lie. Not only are they a lie, what benefit have they brought into our lives? Let's go back in the garden and look at that. Because the lie Satan brought to them is God's trying to keep something from you. So if you'll just listen to me, I'll give you things God didn't have. That was true, but what he gave them wasn't what they thought he was going to give them. Because as soon as they listen to him, accept his perversion of the rules, they become afraid, they become ashamed, and they hide. And although in Genesis' account it doesn't tell us there, other things come in. Sickness, disease, poverty, lack. All the curses on the earth comes through the rules that He sold us on that they're, gonna, they're what we need to do. So if you really have a strong need to be sick, broke, ashamed and afraid, then stick with His rules. But if you want to be free of all those things and walk in the paradise that God created, then you've got to begin to walk in God's rules that are really the truth. But to do that, we have to learn to think differently. And that's a conscious process. So that's what we've been looking at. So we've been going through the rules. And, and there may be more. These are just all that we've got time to go through. And I'm just going to quickly list down because there's six of them we've already covered. And then we're each one of these, and I've warned you last week, each one of these gets a little tougher to let go of and to change. But the, 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 the tougher they get, the greater the blessing. All right. So we'll just quickly, we talked about the fact that the first rule we talked about, the world operates that the world's concept of success is you've got to go to the top. If you're, if you're still at a low level, wherever it is, you're failing. But it's only the guys at the top. So we all want to get to the top. But in God's kingdom, the top place is at the bottom, serving. The second thing we talked about is that in the world's idea, sophistication is that as we get older, we're to become more and more sophisticated. Now, we recognize in different cultures, in different economic conditions, what you mean by sophisticated may be different, but we're all trying to reach some level of sophistication, which is basically so what people think better of us than we did when we were younger. We're more accepted, we're more, we fit in better. So we saw that in the world there's all this pressure to act, and that's why we, you know, get, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, getting our hair done special ways and things like that, at least for the ladies. Um, you know, and as Pastor Sam used to say, if the barn needs to be painted, paint it, that's okay. You know, and, and he said that, I never said that. Um, but the point is, we, we, you know, we can, there's no, nothing wrong with, I, lo- I, I like it dressing up. It's, I've just, was, you know, went to school this way. My law as a lawyer, I was like this. So, so, but my point is, but I don't do it to impress people. I just do it because I'm more comfortable doing that. But the idea is that more sophisticated, the older you are, the maturity is in terms of how sophisticated we are. But we discovered in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to become like a child. Not childish, but like a child. And we saw that a child is just open. And we had a great example on Christmas when we had the little lambs come out during the child's nativity. And they weren't too concerned how impressed you were with how they looked. 
They just were having open fun up here. And that's what God wants us to do with Him. To be open and free, no pretense, no, you know, show. Just because in His eyes, you're kids. You understand that? With all your knowledge, however long you've been walking with the Lord, with all whatever degrees of theology you might have, they don't compare to His. You're just His child. And we've got to learn to come to Him as a child with the freedom and the openness of a child. Okay, then we learned, and I've got to get through these or we'll get, because each one of these we can go back over again and again and again. We discovered that we've been trained that it's okay, not only okay, it's kind of expected that when things don't go well, we complain and feel sorry for ourselves. We discovered in the kingdom of God, when things don't go well, we're to give praise and give give thanks. We saw that in the world, we're trained that seeing is believing. But in the kingdom of God, you've got to believe before you see. We saw that in the kingdom of the world, that it's based on the principle of taking care of yourself first. But in the God's kingdom, if we take care of Him him first, He takes care of us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all the things you need will be added unto you. Then last time we looked at this principle that we were trained in, which is do unto others as they do unto you or do unto others before they do it unto you. In other words, it's take care of yourself first. It's, you know, if somebody does something to you, and this can be very subtle. I mean, you know, if somebody sticks their tongue at you and says nasty things to you, that's one thing. But it can be much more subtle than that. It can be just somebody doesn't like you. And you don't know why they don't like you, so you just don't like them back. And we learned in the, that's what the world operates. And understand that. What's, what's more natural than that? Somebody does something to you, you'll get that, get even. And we can justify this as justice. We'll get, get even. You know, we ought to get even. And I shared with you last time, I don't have much of a problem with that. The one that really gets me is when somebody's done something that I know is wrong, and I think they're getting away with it, then I want to see justice done. But sometimes it's not justice I want to see done. Sometimes it's a nice cover-up for getting even. Not me, but somebody else. And we looked at it in the kingdom of God. He doesn't operate by that rule. And when we discovered, aren't we glad? Because we've all done things against Him. What if God got even? But instead what God does is He loves those who have hated Him. Because the only way you love Him now, because you used to hate Him, it doesn't mean that you stuck your tongue at him and called him names, but when you rebel against him, when you refuse to recognize who he is, when you refuse to submit to him and submit your life to him, that's rebelling against him. The Bible calls that hating him, being an enmity with him, being an enemy against God. And he sent his son to die for everyone that hated him, that, that took his name in vain. And all he requires of us is to act like our fathers in heaven. So we saw last week, that what we need to do is we need to love those who hate us. It says, if you just love those who love you, what difference are you from the world? Why? Because you're operating under the world's principles. What makes the kingdom of God stand out is we're to love people that hate us. And we talked about the different degrees of despitefully using us and what we're to do for those. So now we're going to go on and we're going to get to the next principle. And these are all headed somewhere. And this is beginning to get into the foundational principle of the kingdom of God. Because of all these things are kind of outgrowths of one primary principle that we're getting towards. So this principle says this. In the world, and this is really, these others we've talked about has this kind of at the core. 
in the world system, under the world's rules, that in order to keep what you have, you have to hold on to it. You have to protect it, whatever it may be, whether it's money, resources, whether it's your talent, your ability, whether it's your time, whether it's whatever it is that you have, that you possess, the world tells you. It's just common sense. But that's what the world's based on is common sense. You know what common means? It means average, ordinary. It doesn't mean extraordinary, exalted. It doesn't mean blessed. It means common, every day. Common sense says... (laughs) The only way to keep what you've got is you want to hold on to it, and the more somebody tries to take it away from you, the tighter a grip you need to get on it, and if you even think it's threatened, go hide it. And that's common sense. The world operates on that. Our lives are operated on There's an instinct about our lives to live, to fight, to hold on to life that's in our, in our flesh, that's in our, is in our inner, is in our nature which is why we fight to live. And some of the, 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 the people that have, have passed on this last week, we shared with you earlier, went through a incredible fight to hold on to life. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as it doesn't get in the way of what we're going to talk about today, which is this principle of God. So turn with me to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. I don't think I told you to go there yet. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. As a result of the principle of the world that, we, that we've been steeped in, all our energies, all our thoughts, all of our instincts are devoted to holding on to this life that we have, even though we may not like it, even though we may be, maybe, back up again, even though we may complain about it even though we may be envious of other people that have a better life, we're going to hold on to what we have because we know it. And when we hold on to it, we have control of it. It can be by life. It can be your physical life, your biological life. It can be your, your, your reputation, what people think of you. It can be the money that's in your wallet or your bank. It can be your time. It can be anything you have. Our instinct is to hold on and to preserve it. Now remember why that we do that. Because in the kingdom of God, back in this paradise that we went into, we discovered that this whole paradise was based on being lost in who God is. Remember Adam and Eve? They're, just lost. They're so lost in who God is, it says at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and were not even aware they were naked. They were not ashamed. They're just lost in who God is. They didn't know that, oh, this is good. They didn't know they didn't have something. They didn't know they didn't have clothes. That's how lost in God they were. They were not aware of their need, and in reality, they didn't have a need. Because they were lost in who He is. The moment they take their eyes off of Him and begin to look at their own life apart from God, they become afraid, ashamed, and they hide. Now they are aware of their need and they take matters into their own hands to provide that need. They cut fig leaves or or leaves of trees and put them on themselves. And that's what man's been doing ever since. 
promoting, protecting, providing for himself. Now, the Bible says we're supposed to work, but your job's not your source. God is your source. Your job is an avenue God uses to provide your needs. You need God more than you need your job. And some of you know that very well by experience. But because we've been steeped in this and it's ingrained in our fleshly person, every instinct is to hold on to what we've got, what people think of us, our time. The interesting is you can't hold on to your time, can you? You can hold on to money for a while, but you can't hold on to time. It's, in fact, the more you try to hold on to it, the faster it seems to go. So the point is this. We use all our energy. This is why we get afraid, because we start thinking we're going to lose something that's valuable to us. So we become afraid and try to protect it. And then we start operating in more of these principles of the world to try to protect it. And that instinct, that drive to hold on to what we have is the bait that Satan uses to keep us operating by the kingdoms, the principles of the kingdom of this world because they're based on self-preservation, self-provision, and self-protection. Whereas in the kingdom of God, God's your provider, God's your protector, and God's your promoter. Humble yourself in the sight of God and He will exalt you in due time. You let go of your reputation and watch what God will do. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the mention of his name, every knee would bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue would declare that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God. Why did he do that? Because he let go. I'm getting ahead. He let go of what he had. All right. Well, I've already given it away. (laughs) You can figure it out. Matthew 25. All right. Now, What's interesting here, no, Matthew 16, excuse me. It's interesting here. I'll give you time to get back there. The background here is, is, is Jesus has just asked his disciples uh, 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 who he is. And Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we spent uh, two years ago, we spent a lot of time in this. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says to him, you didn't figure that out yourself, Peter, but my Father revealed that to you. In other words, you're hearing from my Father. You're hearing from Him. Well, just a little later on, Jesus announces that He's got to go to Jerusalem to die, and Peter rebukes Him and tells Him not to do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, there's a little side lesson there. The same spiritual openness that picked up the voice of God revealing that this is my beloved Son, that He is the Christ, that same openness was also open to another voice to tell Him not to go to Jerusalem. So just because somebody is spiritually sensitive, listen carefully, does not mean that they're spiritually discerning. The, the tissue on the inside of my mouth, and yours I assume, is very sensitive. 
So it can pick up sweet, it can pick up bitter. But if I put wasabi in there, or something very hot, or even hot in temperature, what will happen is it will burn those sensitivities. And I won't be able to tell anymore. So the sensitivity is the ability to detect something. Discernment is the ability to determine what it is you've detected. So sensitivity is that my taste buds pick up sweet, sour, hot, you know, mild. Discernment is to know whether it's sweet, sour, hot, or mild. So Peter's sensitivity, he thought, meant he, could, he knew whether he was hearing from God or not. So whatever, whatever voice he heard, he thought that was God. And Jesus has to rebuke him. Now, here's why that's important for our discussion. Because Satan's operating here, because if there's anything he wants to stop, it's Jesus going to the cross. So the avenue he's going to work through to thwart the plan of God is through a man who just heard from God but wasn't discerning. The reason he wasn't discerning yet is he not yet committed his life to Christ. I don't mean get saved. He was still trying to do what he thought was right. He had not submitted his life, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, to Jesus. So I want you to have that background because now what the last thing has come from Peter to Jesus is man's idea of what Jesus ought to be doing. And there are a lot of men and women out there who have their own idea today of what Jesus ought to be doing, who have their own idea of what church ought to be, of what we ought to do in church. But church is for God first. God had a plan for Jesus, and Satan wanted to speak through a man who could hear from God to thwart what God wanted. That's why we need spiritual discernment. Okay. Now, here's, here's where it goes, and here's why this is key. That's what the background here is. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribe and be killed and be raised on the third day. He knew why He was here. He was here to die. He did many other things before then, but his primary purpose was dying. If he didn't die on that cross, all the healing he did, all the gospel he preached would have no power and no effect. And we're back, we've been learning on Wednesday night that it's not just what he did here, it was being raised from the dead that, that sealed it all. Okay. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord that this shall happen to you. Now, now <laughs> I don't want to dwell on this because it will get slowed down here. But think about this. Jesus, this is Jesus, the head of the church, said, I've come here and I've got to go to Jerusalem to die. He's preparing them for this. There's a dramatic change coming in their life and in their ministry and he's preparing from that and there is, he, he's resisting him. So notice Peter takes him aside and begins to talk to him to try to talk him out of what God's told Jesus he's here to do. Now, Peter didn't have a bad heart. He was not a bad man. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been chosen. But he's not taken a step yet. 
Okay. And this is why I never saw this. I always had seen this as separate discussions. And this morning as I was going over this and meditating on it, suddenly I felt the Lord telling me to go back and read before the verses I was going to start with. And I saw the connection here. Jesus has, Peter has told him, Far be it, Lord, for this shall happen to you. Verse 23, He, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but notice this, the things of men. In other words, you're still operating under the principles and the thought patterns of the principles of the world. So you're looking at what I'm doing. You're looking at the blessing that is to people. You're looking at the blessing it is to me, to you. And you're saying from that, this shouldn't end. You could be of more value to mankind by living than by dying. And that makes a lot of sense unless you understand it's not what God wants. See, the kingdom of God doesn't operate by what makes sense to us. That doesn't mean we have to do things that don't make sense. Because there are some people that judge whether it's spiritual by whether it makes sense or not. But we don't discern what the Spirit of God's telling us by what everybody else thinks makes sense. Because Peter's saying here, the world, it doesn't make sense for you to go die now. And look at how Jesus handled this. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, This is not a new discussion. This is, not, this is not two days later. This is a teaching now to Peter and the disciples to bring them from where they've been thinking into thinking along the lines of the principles of the kingdom of God. Yes, sir. And here it is. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's one of the most astounding statements in the Bible. It runs absolutely contrary to every instinct we have, every, every element of common sense that we have. It makes no natural sense to the principles of this world. That if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. How can you save something by losing? I've lost things before. Many times you lose something, but I never had the attitude, well, phew, glad I lost that, I just saved that. <laughs> Usually it's my glasses on the way out the door. <laughs> Where did I put them? Or the keys. You know? I lost the keys. I've never said, oh, I am so blessed that I lost those keys. Now I've saved them. No, I need the keys to get in the car. And that's true. But in the principles of the kingdom of heaven, when it comes to the things of God... When we bring this principle over to there, it just doesn't fit. It just runs contrary to everything that has been ingrained in our thinking. This is why we spent this time talking about these two different sets of rules. 
Because this is so hard. to. We, it's, it's easy to sit in church and say, yes, amen. It's a different thing when we go through that door out there and now have to, God starts dealing with things in our life that says, do you need to let go of that? And, and we say, oh, I need that. <laughs> oh, this is going to be another popular one, I can tell. Okay. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man has come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, when this was written originally, there was no pause there in chapter 17 started. So this is a continuation of what Jesus is revealing to them. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking to them. Now we're going to turn and look at how Peter reacted to this. Just just imagine yourself there. Because just like you and me, Peter and James and John and all the rest of them are going through this incredible journey with Jesus processing everything in terms of the rules that they've been raised by and the principles of the kingdom of this world. So they're trying to fit what he's doing into these rules, and they don't fit. Now he's really hitting it. Because under the common sense principles, this needs to go on longer, therefore you don't need to go to Jerusalem and die. And Jesus is correcting them by saying, listen, in order... In order to, to in order to operate in the kingdom of God, you've got to let go of this kingdom. And now, to help them with it, he's giving them a taste of what they're going to get if they exchange this life for the next. God's kingdom operates on a principle of exchange, and this is what we're going to talk more about. This is where we're headed. And the world does too. But the world's system of exchanging is perverted, which shouldn't shock us since everything else the world operates by is perverted. But the kingdom of God's principle is pure because that was the original. That's what the truth is. So Jesus is trying to explain to them that when, when, as with everything in life, when you make choices, we're going to hear on Saturday morning from Apostle Lafayette about the power to make choices. That's the choice to exchange things. Life is full of exchanges. When you buy a new shirt or a new dress or something, that's an exchange you make. You decide that that tie or that dress is worth the money you're going to have to give them. So you make the exchange of the $25 or $45, whatever it is. You make exchange for the price to them, and they give you back the tie or the shirt or the dress or whatever it is. You've made an exchange. The kingdom of God operates on that, except the motive's different. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit down the road. But what, So what Jesus is doing here 
is Jesus is not saying, this is how I always used to read these verses. They would kind of scare me, and yet I knew it was the truth. So you'd kind of skip over them and go to, you know, blessed art thou and those kind of things. And, and you know, and, 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 but what Jesus is doing here is he's showing them. Do you ever see these advertisements on TV to, to buy into a resort? No. And they don't have some ugly person sitting there, you know, in torn jeans and a t-shirt, you know, saying, hey, this is a great deal for you. Send your money in. No, they start out by show. Oh, yeah. Ever go buy a car? Now, we may have some car salesmen in here. That's okay. Understand this. But you cannot talk price with them until you sat in the car. And in some cases, here's the keys, go take a test drive. Why? They want you to experience, because they're asking you to exchange something. They want your 25000 whatever they want. The, they want the money from you, and they'll exchange the car, but before they'll talk about the exchange, what it's going to cost you, they want to, they want to instill in your senses what you're going to get for the exchange. Everybody with me? That's what Jesus is doing here. This is a test drive. Okay? This is a test drive. So here we're going to go follow. If you've got a question, you can talk to me afterwards because I can't slow down at this point. Okay. Watch this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. What's going on here? Jesus, when he came to this earth, it tells us in Philippians, he laid aside the glory that was his with the Father before he took on flesh and dwelt among us. It says that in Philippians chapter 2. John chapter 17, as he's preparing to go to the cross, he comes to the Father and says, Restore to me again the glory that I had with you before I came. So he obviously laid the glory of God down. The glory is the majesty. It's the, it's the, it's the heaviness. It's the essence of who God is. And everything that we know about God comes out of that essence. Light, truth, love, peace, all those elements that are part of God's nature come out of his, his essence, which is his glory. And Jesus was the full reflection of that, John chapter 1 says. But he laid that part of it aside. So what's happening is on this mountain now, he's brought them up to the mountain, and on this mountain, he's allowing some of this to leak out. Why? To give them a taste of what he's just told them to let go of this life for. See, God doesn't require a blind... Blind faith is no faith at all. Because faith is believing that something you've been told is the truth. So blind means I'm trying to believe something, but I've never been told anything, so I'm just going to... That's not faith. And so Jesus has told them to do something. Now He's giving them a taste of what's offered to them if they'll let go of what all their ambition was here. And that's still the same offer to us. We were talking about that Wednesday night here. That's the basis of our hope. Okay. 
Peter answered and said, Lord, it's good to be here. He's trying to process this. He's trying to figure this out. Look what he does. It's good to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles or little dwelling places, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He Notice what Peter, instead of just taking this in, look at this, he's trying to help Jesus out. It's exactly what it is, his religion. He's trying to help Jesus out, and he's figuring out what to do with this experience based on the principles that he's learned of the world. So he's trying to, oh, he's trying to contain it and hold on to it. Enshrine it. Build a little booth, which is what they did at the Festival of Booths. They built these little booths to represent God, place for God for them to dwell in. And so he wants to build this thing to house the experience so he can have it on his terms whenever he wants. You can't put God in a booth. And you can't put your relationship with God in a booth. If he let you do it, you'd be cheated. So, while this is going on, God's not paying attention. <laughs> God didn't say, wow, what a great idea! Why didn't we think of that? Verse 5, While they were still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him! When the disciples heard that, now... They recognized something's going on here bigger than them. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus only. As they came down off the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Don't tell this to anybody else until I've been raised from the dead. So what's the principle of the kingdom of God? If you want to hold on to something, you've got to let it go. If you want to hold on to your life, you've got to let it go. If you want to hold on to your possessions, you've got to let them go. If you want to hold on to your time, you've got to let it go. Not abandon it, but you've got to let it go to Him. We've got to come back into this arrangement here where we're giving everything up to Him. He's everything. And nothing is between Him and us. See, when we hold on to things, they're now between Him and and us. Perhaps the greatest example of that is in the book of Genesis, chapter 22, where God Himself, and we've gone over this a number of times, I don't have to go into detail, God gave to Abraham a son Isaac and told him, made as clear as He could make it, through this boy, I'm going to do what I want to do for you, and I'm going to build a people and nations from you through this boy. And then sometime later, God says to him, Abraham, take that boy that I gave you and go up to the mountain I'll show you within three days and I want you to let him go back to me. I want you to give him to me. I want you to sacrifice his life on that altar. And Abraham obediently took the son, went up the mountain, prepared the altar, Tied his son. He was probably in his 20s, the son was. Laid him on the altar. 
took the knife up, fully prepared to do what God had said. And an angel speaks to him and says, spare him, don't do this. He says, now I know that you truly fear me or love me or reverence me. Now I know it. Because your heart's been tested. And this boy who I gave you... See, see, sometimes the things we have the greatest trouble letting go of to God are the things God gave us. Well, actually, He gave us everything. I mean, when you really realize it, everything you have, He gave you. And so He can... He, he, God wants you... He what? It's not because it says in Hebrews eleven that his belief was that God would raise the boy up from the dead because God wasn't changing his mind about the purpose of the boy. <clears throat> it wasn't that he wasn't going to get him back. He had to entrust that process to God and take it out of his own control. And as parents, we understand that <clears throat> we want to. You know, we have a responsibility as parents. To, to raise our children, to, to discipline, train them, do all the right things. But there comes a point where it begins time to let go of some parts of that. And as they get to a certain age, that gets harder. Because you see, when they're two, you know, it's wonderful to get parents come to you. And I've got, you know, uh, uh, of our, uh, or even our own children have been parents. So we, uh, and, you know, in the, the, the ch- first text with the first child, you know, oh, we can't wait for the walk. We can't wait for the walk. Yeah, you just wait. Because right now they stay where you put them. From the moment they start walking, it changes everything. They no longer stay where you put them. And that doesn't end when they're 18, 19, 20, 30, 40 years of age. There are times you'd like to still pick them up and put them where you want them. But there you've got to let go. And what is it we have to let go of? The control. The control. It doesn't mean we stop influencing, we stop loving, we stop being there, but it's the control is the issue. And Abraham knew he'd get him back somehow, but it was the experience of letting the control of this go to God. And this applies to everything God's given us. Some of the most difficult things are the things we know God's given us, our talent, our calling, our anointing. None of them belong to you. You didn't create any of them. Whatever gifts you have, whatever calling you have, whatever anointing you have, God loaned it to you, entrusted it to you as a steward to serve His people with it under His direction. Not just to do with it what you think needs to be done. And that's part of what God was doing with Abraham. He knew the purpose for the son. But God wanted Abraham to make sure that he knew who that son belonged to and who had the ultimate control of what that was, how this was going to happen. Not an easy thing to do. And the more precious these things they are to us, the more difficult it is to let go. There have been things God's dealt with me about, I'd rather go to a cross and physically die than have to let go of what He wanted me to let go of. Because those things get down in our hearts in the cares. Okay, we've got to move along here. But notice what he's doing. He's showing them what they're going to get by letting go. All right. Now, again, it's, go to John chapter 12.
verse 20. There were certain Greeks among those who were, came to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, Bethsaida, of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So he's teaching this principle of the kingdom of God, and it's the principle of sowing and reaping. The foundational principle of the kingdom of God is sowing and reaping. And again, we'll get into more of that down the road. But sowing and reaping is an exchange. I take that seed I have in my hands. I have control of it. I can do what I want to do with my seed. And Jesus is saying, as long as you do with what you want to do with your seed, it remains alone. Of no value to anyone. And yet within that seed is the potential of life springing forth to feed many, many, many other people. But as long as I hold on to my seed and have control of my seed and can see my seed, so I don't need to exercise faith because I can see my seed. As long as I hold on to my seed and keep my seed, all that that seed was intended to do will stay dormant inside that seed. But I'll have it. I'll have control of it. I can enjoy it. I can't get any benefit out of it. But I have it. And I have control of it. But Jesus says, unless that grain of seed is let go and sown in the ground, in the ground you lose sight of it. You can't control what's happening. There are things you need to do for it, but you no longer have control of it. And he says, but if you do that, it will begin to break forth and produce life that touches other people. And then he goes on to apply this principle to the ultimate example. He who loves his life, verse 25, will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. Now he's doing this right before he's going to give his life up for yours and for mine. He who loves his life will lose it. He who loses his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's an exchange. The Bible talks about two types of life. There's the life called bios, Greek word bios, which means what we normally mean by life, living, breathing. The word actually that's used for life here is suke, which means soul, which is the part of you that is your personality, the part of your, your spouse that you're familiar with and your friends you're familiar with, so how we kind of recognize, what we think of each other's personality, that's what we mean by the soul. It's the part of you you're conscious of most of the time. 
that we invest most of our time and energy in. And what he's saying here is that, that if I hold on to that, notice the first thing he says is, it will be alone. There's some of you out there that are lonely. The only way that's going to change is to take what you have and sow it. Because ultimately what he's talking about here of sowing is his life. Jesus acted this out because he took his one solitary life and he sowed it into God's hands. Literally, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He literally let this whole life go and what was going to happen to him because once he got on that cross and you know he, nobody took his life from him, he laid it down, the Bible says. But once he released that life into his father's hands, he had no control over it anymore. He had to let go of the control into his father's hands, but he was willing to do that because he understood this principle of the kingdom of God, that if he did that, then he would produce a harvest of other lives that includes untold millions, including you and me. And so we often look at these verses of, oh, what God's, what's God want from me? What's God going to take away from me? And Jesus is trying to say, no, don't look, at, don't look at what you're giving up. Look at what you're getting. Because it's an exchange of this ordinary life that operates by all these rules, that's always, always requiring things of you, always coming at you. It's giving that, the care of that life up in exchange for something the Bible calls eternal life, which is life at the level where God lives. That's the life that I'm convinced that they had in the garden when they were totally lost in Him. I've told you before, eternal life does not mean living forever. Eternal life means the level, quality of life that you are living. Yes, it's in the heaven, but it's also heaven here because Jesus said in several places, the kingdom of God has come. When you were born again, that kingdom was birthed inside of you and inside of me. But the reason we're not operating in it any more than we are is because we're still operating by the principles of the kingdom of the world. And the, the doorway into the experiencing of eternal life here in this earth is letting go of the hold you have and the hold that has on you of this life itself. That includes your time your money, your resources, your, 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 your reputation, all the things that are dear to you that you want to hold on to, Jesus is saying, the principle of the kingdom of God is if you let control of those go to me. In other words, make Him Lord. We call Him Lord, but He's Lord in name and we're Lord in practice. It's my life. Don't tell me what I can do with my life. It's my life. That's holding on to it. And Jesus said, if you continue to hold on to it, you have God's word, you will lose it. But while you're still here, while you have the freedom to choose, you can choose to let go of whatever it is and sow it into the kingdom of God. And that will open the door to eternal life flowing out of you. 
it often happens in little ways. I've had situations now where I find God is asking me to give of myself into certain situations. It just may be being willing to care about something where I may get hurt. See, we're all human, you know, and, and I, my, especially with the background that I was raised in, I don't want to care about something if I don't think it's, if I'm going to get hurt by it. So what we'll do is we'll, we may care in name, but we don't put our heart into it. And so we hold our heart back, but we say the words and we do the actions, but we hold the real caring part of us back. And there's situations lately where God says, no, 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 no. You need to give, you need to give your, sow your life into this situation. You need to really be willing to, to care about what happens there, even though you don't know now what's going to happen. Can you take that caring and entrust it to me? And I'm watching it begin to change situations. It's your time. It's your finances. But they're not yours anyway. But the principle that Jesus is teaching here is that when I try to hold on to that, I will lose it. But if I let go of it, if I sow it, if I purposely give it into this God's work, into God's kingdom, whether it's, this, whether it's finances or whether it's prayer or whether it's time or whether it's caring or whatever it is, if I just do that, then I've opened a door. I've let go and now I've opened a door. Because God, see, I can only do that when God's my source of whatever that is. You cannot be over in this paradise totally absorbed in who God is holding on to those things. Now, it doesn't mean, God, you can't have things. It doesn't mean you have to go around with, with a you know, car that, that barely makes it to church or to work. It doesn't mean you can't have things. It's just that they can't have you. I heard one preacher say, I keep a signed bill of sale in my glove compartment in my car. If God ever tells me to give it away... It was, that was the attitude he had. I don't know if he literally did that. He was ready to give anything away. And he would go through his house periodically, and if something, if he felt a twinge and stuff, I want, he would immediately... He didn't want that spirit, that attitude to get ingrained in him again because he'd renewed his mind enough, well, I'm working on it, I'm not there yet. But I see that's where God's... That's where life is. I'll close with this. The Apostle Paul said, well, that's Jesus... That's too much to expect. The Apostle Paul understood this. He learned this. Galatians 2.20 says, For I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live. Oh my gosh, Paul's died. No, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. See, we want all the things of God that we talk about. We want to have the Spirit of God lead us and direct us in life. We've got this wonderful class coming up in School of Ministry about how to be led by the Spirit, but it won't do us any good if we're trying to get the Spirit of God to cooperate with us. The Spirit of God is in us to get us to cooperate with Him. He's the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of John. You'll find that intimidation... Every work of the enemy inroad into your life comes as a result of violating this principle. When my life is completely given over to him, there's, that's why it says in the Bible that Satan could find no place in Jesus. He tried, but he could find nothing to get a hold of him. Because the only part of me that Satan can get a hold of me is a part that's concerned about me. 
That's why when they, uh, they provoked him and when they mocked him and when they beat him, he never answered back. The only time he ever answered anything was to defend his father, never himself. How can you go through that and not strike back somehow? Because he was completely yielded. He'd already died before he went to the cross. He died in the garden. That's why the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan once he was commissioned into his ministry. Why? It was a, it was a first test run to deal with the flesh under the temptation. And I'm convinced he had to do that throughout his life in ministry, but the ultimate test was in the garden. He died in the garden. He settled the issue in the garden when he said, Not my will, but your will be done. He sowed his life on his knees in the garden inside of him. From that point on, it didn't matter what they said to him or did to him because he was already crucified. Paul came to that place. We was crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me. If you want the power of God, the life of God flowing out of you, you've got to get out of the way and give your life to Him. So, but I'm saved. I know that. But it's the process of thinking now by the kingdom's principles because we're afraid we'll lose under this principle. My gosh, if I do that, what am I going to lose? But look what God says, all you're going to gain. Because all that stuff stays here anyway. This became so real to the Apostle Paul that in the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians in the first chapter, Paul's in jail and he's talking about how people are, 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 are trying to persecute the gospel because he's in jail. And he goes through this thing and he says, I'm going to dilemma in my life. I don't know whether to stay on living here or go on to be with the Lord. He says, I'm betwixt, I'm caught between these two things. Imagine thinking that. You know, we, we can say that, but he meant it. We can say, oh, I'm fed up with this life. Yeah, until something happens, you watch how you try to hold on to it. But Paul was ready to go because he'd seen what that was like in here. He'd seen what that was like. But he said, I've decided to stay here because it's for your advantage that I stay. In other words, my work here is not done. But I'm ready. My hope is not here. So we're talking about Wednesday night. My hope is not in, you know, not in the people that love me and write me letters. My hope is in what I've already seen. I've already made the exchange. I've already let go of this life. But see, if you let go of it, God will give it back to you. Teacher we had at Bible school once made this statement, and I'll close with this. He said, until you're ready to die, you're really not prepared to live because you spend all your time here trying to hold on to this life. Everything you do is based on fear. But when you realize, not to my Christians, only if you've come to Christ, but if you've come to Christ, you're now in this kingdom, but we're still operating by these rules. All we've got to do is start changing how we think about our life. And it's a process. It's not likely something you're going to flip a switch tomorrow and suddenly you're just totally over here. But we've got to recognize this is our goal. We've got to recognize, I can't think the way I've thought before. I can't look at my money that way. I can't look at the time that way. I can't look at my resources that way. I can't look at my, my, my heart and caring that way. I can't look at anything in my life the same way anymore. I've got to look at it in terms of the kingdom principles, not in terms of the world. I used to think that God was trying to take something from me. You know, God's nature and heart is always to give something to us. But what we hold on to 
is in his way. Simple, practical example. How can you put somebody in, something into someone's hands that's a clenched fist? And the last act of giving is your hand is left open and free to receive. The kingdom of God operates on the principle of sowing and reaping, of taking your life and sowing it into him, and watch what he'll reap back in your life. 